By the way, if somebody uh, slipped in as a visitor and I don't recognize you or didn't see your hand, if some of you are aware of it, make sure they get a bag. You know, we can do this kind of quietly, too, if we, I mean, if it has to be. Anyway, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew 26. We want to look at verses 14 through 25 this morning, betrayal in the context of Passover. Matthew 26 to 14 through 25. And let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for your, your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, the text this morning, kind of a sobering text. Uh, Judas, one of the twelve. Uh, it's really horrendous to think about. But uh, it was true. Uh, betrayer, right in the very midst of uh, the apostles. And so, Lord, give me grace to teach it accurately, to make the appropriate applications for us as a people. Help us to be wise. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be Christ-like. Uh, as we deal with all kinds of situations, including apostasy. So, Lord, we commit our study to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you note the uh, overhead there. We are looking at, at Matthew. The theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapters 26 and 27, the passion of the King. Uh, the last week of Christ's earthly ministry is commonly called Passion Week, as it builds to the climax of the cross, followed by the resurrection. It was indeed a very busy week, this last week of Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, In the early part of the week, uh, tensions have been mounting here and rising between Jesus and the religious leaders, completely their issue, their problem. But uh, tensions have been rising in terms of the tensions, and they really mount uh, in a huge way during this, this last week. Uh, They tried to uh, trick him or entrap him verbally, and they couldn't do it. So in the end, they decided, you know what, we just need to have a plan to take him out. He needs to go. Uh, We just need to do it in the right way. So they're plotting uh, just a few days uh, even before uh, the crucifixion here. Well, on Wednesday of the Passion Week, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the high priests assembled, as I say, to plot the death of Christ, as seen in Matthew 26, 3 through 5. Uh, Again, they were trying to figure out how to do it, the proper timing, and they all agreed the proper timing would not be during the Passover festival, uh, which including the the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a period of eight days. So they said, no, it can't take place during the Passover. Uh, We have to do it after that. Well, then uh, after introducing that uh, meeting to plot the death of Christ, we have inserted really what I call a flashback story. Uh, to several days earlier, before they had this meeting, uh, when Mary had anointed Jesus with expensive oil in preparation for his burial. Uh, The disciples led by Judas were indignant at such a waste. I mean, it was about a year's worth of, uh, uh, you know, the value of the perfume that she just poured out as she anointed Jesus' head and his feet. And they were thinking, what a waste. And and then uses the word indignant. They were really quite upset about this. But Jesus defended her, saying, quote, She has done a good work for me. Thematically, Matthew segues from the story about Mary's anointing to the story about Judas, the betrayer. Mary expresses love to the uttermost in response to Jesus' predictions of his impending death. In contrast, Judas also heard the words about Jesus' impending death But he uh, responded demonstrating betrayal to the uttermost, thinking 
you know what? If this is true, I'm going to get out of it what I can while the getting's still good. Mary was all about Jesus. Judas was all about himself. We remember Mary in honor, but the name Judas is synonymous with the worst kind of character. Nobody names their, their kid Judas, right? Uh, Mary is a pretty common name, right? I have a sister named Mary. Uh, we earlier saw in Matthew 26, as I say, uh, verses 3 through 5, that the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. The storyline now continues with the part that Judas plays, as we pick up the narrative here in Matthew 26 and verse 14. We read there, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Many of the commentaries bring out that what seems to have triggered Judas to go to these religious leaders when he did was uh, this whole background episode of uh, Mary and how when she went to anoint Jesus and Judas kind of led the disciples in being indignant about it, that he was, uh, they were rebuked, really, and they were put in their place by Jesus. And that incident, it seems, did not go over well with Judas because thematically it is, it is placed right in context here. Uh, the anointing and then the betrayal. And so uh, recall that in the parallel text of John 12, it very clearly says Judas was the instigator, uh, complaining about Mary wasting this costly perfume. Uh, it should have been sold to the poor, put in the bag, so I could have you know, helped myself to the bag, is what Judas is thinking. And then it specifically says it was not that Judas cared about the poor, but rather he was a thief in charge of the money box. So this is all background material as far as what we're getting into our study this morning. This gives us insight into the heart of Judas, in effect, showing that he was all about greed. And he was all about what he could get out of this position uh, as far as being an apostle and really being the treasure of the group. For him, again, it was not about Jesus. It was really about himself. It was all about Judas. So being shut down by Jesus in the confrontation over Mary's act of love and devotion, Judas then goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus for what he can get out of it, as I've already said. You see, he too had heard Jesus talking about his coming crucifixion and thought, well, if this whole movement is going down, we'd all hope for the kingdom But if this movement's going down, as Jesus himself is saying now, I might as well get out of it what I can. Not realizing who Jesus truly was. Uh, Note the emphasis here when it says one of the twelve. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. One of the twelve. The enormity of this sin was that it was done by a privileged insider. One of the twelve. I might expect somebody, an outsider, you know, a radical Sadducee, Pharisee, somebody outside. But inside, one of the twelve. Well, his name was Judas Iscariot. His great sin of betrayal was entirely premeditated, totally intentional. He sinned against the greatest amount of light possible. Being one of the twelve, he had lived and traveled with Jesus for three years. He had seen his miracles up close and personal. I mean, he had, a, he had a front row seat. I mean, actually, he was closer than the front row. I mean, he was in the group. He himself had even been empowered by Jesus to do miracles. He witnessed the incomparable teachings of Jesus Christ. He saw his impeccable character, 
day in and day out. And yet, in spite of all that light, he now goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus for a few pieces of silver. Who can fathom the depths of human depravity? It is really scary, terrible. Verse 15, and he said, he goes to these uh, chief priests, and verse 15 continues, and said, what are you willing to give me? Me, it's all about me. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And so they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now this was a, really an insulting pittance, you know, as far as amount. According to Exodus 21:32, this was to be the reimbursement fee for an injured slave. Next slide, please. Yeah, there we go. Exodus 21:32, if the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So the exact uh, amount that uh, Judas got for betraying Jesus relates to uh, the amount that was to be reimbursed to uh, the owner of a slave who was injured. Now, the words counted out to him are more literally uh, translated, they weighed out to him. Uh, this is, by the way, how the LXX, uh, the, uh, the Septuagint, uh, the Old Testament translation of the, uh, of the, of the Old Testament into Greek, it translates it this way in Zechariah 11.2, which says there, next slide, please. Zechariah 11.12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. There's a story in context in Zechariah, but it's really a prophecy ultimately about Jesus Christ. This was the value they put on the one who had healed their sick without number, who had healed all the blind, lame, deaf, and demon-possessed that came to him, the one who had fed the multitudes, the one who had constantly done about doing good, as it says in Acts 10.38. This, this is how they valued him. Not very much at all. Uh, ironically, Zechariah 11.13 indicates the absurdity of this little value they put on Messiah's life. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Zechariah eleven thirteen, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price. There, there's a little sarcasm there. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And, uh, and of course, this is all prophecy related to what ultimately happened in relationship to Judas. But what a contrast. Mary has just anointed Jesus with costly perfumed, valued about a year's wages, 300 denarii, but in contrast, Judas betrayed Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver, which was something. It was perhaps about four months' worth of wages for a common laborer. But the point, it was a relatively small amount uh, for which to sell out Jesus. Ed Glasscock says that such an act of treachery should follow on the wonderful act of worship was divine irony. Verse 16 so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. With money in hand, Judas then sought for an opportunity to betray Jesus. The time was going to come earlier than the chief priests had ever imagined, and certainly not at the time that they had planned or expected. 
But it was right on target as far as God's sovereign plan that it happened on Passover. Verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now Wycliffe says here, Probably no harmonistic problem in the Gospels has been as perplexing as the one presented here. <laughs> and it is a perplexing problem. Uh, here's the problem. You see, the synoptic Gospels, uh, synoptic means similar, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all very similar. John has a lot of content that is unique just to John. So when we talk about the synoptic Gospels, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the synoptic Gospels indicate that Jesus and his disciples partook of Passover on Thursday evening, while the Gospel of John indicates the Passover took place on the next day, on Friday evening. Well, what is the answer to this perplexing uh, dilemma? You can't partake of Passover on Thursday night and have Passover on Friday night, right? I mean, how does that work? Well, that's the perplexing question. It seems to clearly be presented. Nobody disagrees that that is the case. It seems like the, the night before uh, when uh, the Jewish hierarchy partook of Passover, I mean, they, they wouldn't even go into Pilate's court because they didn't want to be defiled so they could partake of Passover. They, they hadn't done it yet. Clearly, as seen in John. Well, various possible answers have been put forth here. And without being dogmatic, and believe me, you read very many commentaries, you probably say, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be dogmatic. There are a lot of different views by a lot of godly scholars here. So without being dogmatic, the one that makes the most sense to me is the idea that there were two different calendars in use by the Jews at this time, which seems to be the case. Uh, the Jews from up north, from where Jesus and the disciples were, except for Judas, he hailed from the Judah area, but uh, they all, the rest of them, were from up north. And they had one calendar that reckoned Passover a day earlier than the calendar used by those down in the southern area, uh, in the Jerusalem, Judea area. Uh, John MacArthur summarizes, and I read his summary here, from Josephus, who was a uh, Jewish historian that lived in these days. And praise the Lord for Josephus. We get a lot of history, uh, Jewish history, from Josephus. Uh, from Josephus and the Mishnah and other ancient Jewish sources, we learn from the Jews, we learn that the Jews in northern Palestine calculated days from sunrise to sunrise. Apparently, most, if not all, of the Pharisees used that system of reckoning. But the Jews in the southern part, which centered in Jerusalem, calculated the days from sunset to sunset. Well, on that basis, the seeming contradictions in the gospel accounts are easily explained. Being Galileans, Jesus and the disciples considered Passover day to have started at sunrise on Thursday and to end at sunrise on Friday. The Jewish leaders who arrested and tried Jesus, being mostly priests and Sadducees, considered Passover day to begin at sunset on Thursday and end at sunset on Friday. By that variation, predetermined by God's sovereign provision, Jesus could thereby legitimately celebrate the last Passover meal with his disciples and yet still be sacrificed on Passover day. That seems to meet and fit all the um, scenarios, all the, all the different uh, variables in, in the Gospels. So it was probably Thursday morning, uh, in my thinking, when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
Now, note it says here, it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Another little problem here, right? Passover was Nisan 14. Unleavened Bread didn't begin till Nisan 15 and went through the 21st. So technically, uh, Passover was on the 14th of the month with the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then following uh, for seven days after that. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews were forbidden to use yeast in their bread or to have it in their homes. However, Exodus 12, 18 says the yeast was to be removed from the house on Nisan 14, which was Passover day, and was not to be eaten again until the 21st. So, therefore, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread came to be seen as essentially as a unit of one, as the one blended into and segued into the other. In fact, they are so closely related that they are really pretty much spoken of. Next slide, please. Uh, Luke 22, verse 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. You got a clear statement there. There's a really blending the two in, in you know, Jewish thinking. Uh, to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread was really in, uh, to include Passover. And to talk about Passover included the Feast of Un Unleavened Bread, often used essentially interchangeably, as seems, as seems to be the sense here also in Matthew 26, 17. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was actually Passover, as seen in the fact that the disciples went that day to prepare Passover, which they ate later that night. Uh, got a map next slide, please. So there you go. Uh, you'll note uh, Passover was the 14th uh, here. And uh, then you had immediately following uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third day, you, know, you got the crucifixion. Three days later, the resurrection, the first fruits, uh, Feast of First Fruits. So you got a lot happening here in, these, in this eight-day span. But again, it was pretty much uh, they, the Jews saw it as a, as a unit uh, together. As I say, it was evidently early on the day of Thursday that the disciples asked Jesus about where to prepare the Passover supper. Two disciples then went to prepare, according to uh, Luke 22.8, uh, who were Peter and John. Uh, next slide, please. Luke 22.8 says, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. Verse 18, And he said, Go into the city, city being Jerusalem, uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, at this point, Jesus is very secretive about where they would meet. It says in John eleven fifty seven 57, that the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he, that is, Jesus was, he should report it that they might seize him. So the word was out. If anyone knows where Jesus is at, you need to report it. They gave a command to this. Kind of made a Jewish law to that effect. Add to this, Matthew 26, 16 says, Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. Uh, which more literally means to hand over. To hand him over. As translated deliver in verse 15. So if Judas knew where they were meeting that night, what do you think? He'd probably say, oh, hey, we're meeting here tonight. This is where you'll find him. Well, Jesus is very careful to not let Judas know, or anyone else. At this point, uh, if, the, if Judas wouldn't have been able to inform the chief priests, they would have very probably come earlier in the night, interrupted the Last Supper before Jesus had finished, 
sharing with the disciples what he wanted to share on this last night. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So this was a very important meeting. In fact, so important that what we are doing here this morning, what we have done here this morning in communion, goes back to this night. Uh, as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which we will consider, Lord willing, next week. So this was a very important meeting. Uh, nothing was to get in the way or disrupt it. And so Jesus, in a clandestine way, uh, to make sure that things were kept secret, instructed the disciples, that is Peter and John, to go into the city, Jerusalem, and there they would find a certain man whom they were to interact with, and uh, as they interacted with him, tell him that they're going to have the Passover dinner at, at the house. Uh, next slide, Luke adds these details, Luke 22. Uh, and he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house which he enters, and you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So normally men in this society do not carry water. Uh, the men didn't do this. The women normally did. Only women. So he would have been very conspicuous. What's this guy? I mean, normally don't find the guy carrying water, but they're going to run into a guy carrying water. Jesus supernaturally knew exactly where this man would be, exactly when he would be, uh, providentially where he was, what he would be doing. Now, we don't have any idea who this man was. We don't have any idea who the master of the house was. It's interesting how God in his plan uses a lot of people incognito. Uh, a lot of people, we don't have any idea who they were. Uh, they themselves did not even probably realize how they were being used of God providentially. I'm sure this man didn't say, you know what? I'm going to go carry this water for Jesus today. He had no idea how God was going to use this. And you know, God often works that way. Uh, we don't even know how God's using the, some of the things that we're doing, but he's able to sovereignly and providentially move us about as he will to accomplish his purposes. Well, it is surmised that either Jesus set this up ahead of time or he just supernaturally knew uh, a lot of supernatural activity in the, in the mix here, which would tell, uh, lead me to lean towards that this wasn't necessarily set up ahead of time, uh, maybe. But uh, he knew what the response of the master of the house would be. Uh, again, Jesus evidently was well known as the teacher. And this man was evidently a follower of Christ, that is the master of the house. Uh, notice Jesus says to tell the man, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at, at your house with my disciples. Now, clearly, Jesus knew exactly what was going down in the timetable he was on. Throughout the ministry of Christ, it was repeatedly stated, it was repeatedly stated in the Gospels, that his hour had not yet come. And therefore, no harm could come to him. But now his time had come. Uh, his hour was here. My time is at hand. Now, the timing of the death of Christ is a major emphasis in this whole surrounding context. Uh, it was all orchestrated by God. In Matthew 26, 2, Jesus said just two days prior to the crucifixion, uh, he told the disciples with explicit precision that this would happen exactly on Passover. He would be delivered over uh, for crucifixion. Now we find in verse 18, Jesus emphasizing that his time is at hand. Uh, 
Timing belongs to God. As David says in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand. You know, uh, I went years ago on a harvest crew. Uh, right out of, I mean, I didn't even go to my own graduation. I, man, I had to start working early. Anyway, but uh, my cousin went, and I went to, down to Kansas where we connected with the, uh, the harvest crew. And then we went down to Texas, worked our way all the way up to Canada. But uh, the reason I didn't go to my, uh, my graduation is I went down there with my, with my cousin Don. And uh, Don was in a hurry to get to work. And he said, I'm leaving on such a date. If you're not coming with me, I'm going anyway. And so I went with him, missed my graduation. Anyway, I say all this. We, we had Don's funeral yesterday. My cousin died. And uh, he was a year and a half or older than me or something like that. But anyway, you know, you think about life. It's so brief. But David says, my times are in your hand in Psalm 31, 15. It says in Psalm 139, 16, again, David says, in your book, they were all written of me. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. It's somehow comforting just to know that our times are in God's hands. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, Job 14, 5 says, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits. So that he cannot pass. You know, it's appointed unto men once to die. There's an appointment that we have with death. Only exceptions if Christ comes in our lifetime, perhaps today. But uh, God appoints these things. At the end of his life, Paul could say, I have finished the course. God has a specific course for each one of us. We run our lap and then on to glory. In perfect accord with God's timing and timetable that he has for us. Well, according to Luke, the man would make available his large upper room uh, to accommodate them. Now, typical of the homes of the well-to-do at this time, uh, the main dwelling was on uh, the ground level. And the banquet or the guest room was on the upper level. And this is where we get the idea of the upper room. The upper room discourse is found in the Gospel of John. Next slide, please. Uh, in uh, John 13 and 14, we really have the upper room discourse. Sometimes uh, we refer to the whole uh, thing in terms of that whole section from John 13 through John 17 as the upper room discourse. But really only the t- two chapters took place uh, in the upper room. And then uh, the others uh, takes place in route to Gethsemane, uh, John 15 through 17. Next slide, please. Uh, Mark 14, 16. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said. He walked in and said, well, I don't see anybody carrying water. Do you? No, no, they saw him. He was right there, just as Jesus said. And it says, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I love this statement that they found it just as he had said. Uh, you know, I really like it when it turns out where it's just exactly as somebody has said. You know, they've made arrangements and I show up and it's exactly as they have said. I, I remember years ago, this car salesman said he had his spiel. And then he says, you know, when you show up, it will be exactly as I have said. Now, I never tested him out on that. But uh, I know with Jesus, that is true. When we show up, everything will be exactly as Jesus says. When he says he has gone to prepare a place for us, when we show up, it will be just as he has promised. Only more spectacular, glorious than we ever imagined. But it's always that way with Jesus. We always find it just as he says. Verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, scholars believe 
that Jesus and the disciples probably reclined at a, at a low U-shaped table uh, for such an occasion as this, giving the number of uh, 12 uh, disciples in Jesus. Each person would prop themselves up on their elbow a good part of the time and, and eat with the other hand with their feet pointing away from the table. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, perhaps uh, something, you know, uh, like this. You know, where they're all kind of propped up and, and eating with their feet pointing away uh, from the table. Uh, we know John was right beside Jesus. Uh, we, we don't know uh, who, where Judas was, but we suspect this is Judas. Looks like him, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> nice guy. He looked like a nice guy. Anyway, just an artist's idea. Uh, we know from John thirteen twenty three that John was reclining at the Lord's right side. And it is surmised that Judas may have been on his left. Because John 13, 26 says that after Jesus dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. Which would indicate he was probably in pretty close proximity. He probably, you know, wasn't down on, on this end somewhere if he's, if he's handing it to him. He's probably in close proximity. Very possibly right on his left. Now, uh, Matthew summarizes and condenses the events of this night in the upper room as we consider all the Gospels and we try to coordinate everything that is, is being said. Uh, next slide, please. We have uh, perhaps this order of events, the eating of the Passover, washing the disciples' feet, identifying Judas as the betrayer, which is right before us now here. Then Judas leaves, institution of the Lord's Supper. I think that happened after he left. Uh, upper room discourse in route to Gethsemane, Christ's high priestly prayer, anguish in Gethsemane, and then the betrayal and arrest. So again, we think generally this is the, the sequence, uh, the, the chronological order of things. Verse 21, uh, not that Matthew keeps things necessarily in specific chronological order. He often doesn't. Thematically, he puts in place what he wants to to make the points he wants to make. Verse 21 now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So, I mean, just got down. We're just enjoying this meal. Great fellowship, you know. And, uh, and, then, and then this. Here again, we have additional brand new, brand new revelation. The disciples had already been told that Jesus was going to be delivered to the chief priests, who in turn would deliver him to the Gentiles, who in turn would crucify him. That's already been laid out. That's not new. In addition, Jesus had revealed that it was going to happen on Passover, as we've already noted. But now Christ adds more to the story. And this is a revelatory bomb that will stun the entire group. I mean, this is high drama here. Assuredly is the Greek word, amen. You know uh, what word we get from the Greek word, amen? Amen. It's pretty simple. Uh, it's, it's a strong affirmation, meaning truly, assuredly, indeed, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now it's one of you sitting right here at the table, right now. That was shocking and should have been especially shocking to Judas since, I mean, you realize in context he had just come from talking to the chief priests. He had just come from getting paid off to do this very thing. And now Jesus is announcing it. You would have thought, oh my goodness, he knows me. He knows everything about me. 
I mean, he wasn't there at the meeting. How does he know this? Now, Jesus had previously revealed that he would be delivered up, but this is the first time that he made it known that it would be one of the twelve. Moody Bible Commentary, that Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart, but never let on to the other disciples, is a remarkable testimony to his patience and self-control. Isn't that true? You thought he said, you know, you know I'm going to let you out of the oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to let this out of the bag. He didn't do that. Nobody knew, except for the Lord. This showed Jesus' omniscience, that he knows all things, even what is going on in a person's heart. Verse 22, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. I mean, they had a, a group breakdown. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? This shocking announcement caused immediate great sorrow, exceeding sorrow and consternation. Now, amazingly, it's a kind of amazing to me that no one looked at Judas and said, Whoop, you're up, bud. I suspected something. Nobody did that. And they didn't really accuse anybody else. Peter didn't look at James, and James didn't look at John. I mean, they weren't looking at each other. Judas had played the game so well that no one knew, other than the Lord himself, that he was a total hypocrite. Judas is an arch type of hypocritical insider who is not real. Even the Lord had one of these in his group of the disciples. You say, but that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I think it happens regularly. These people play the game so well, they fool everyone, at least for a time. In the case of Judas, he had everybody fooled until the very end. I mean, they never did figure it out until after the fact. He was good at deception. You know, uh, the devil is a deceiver. In fact, the Bible says he deceives all. That's the devil's thing. He deceives people. And, you know, his, his best servants are most like him. Very deceptive. The Bible says that in the last days, perilous times will come. They will be dangerous times because they are days of apostasy. They are times when people will still have a form of godliness, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. You see, they're still going through the motions of being a Christian. But they deny the life-changing power of a true relationship with God. They will say things like, I can't help who I am in my perversion because I was just born this way. Exactly. That is why you need to be born again. But they will deny this life-changing reality. In 2 Timothy 3.13, it says, Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The last days of the church age are perilous times because of apostasy and deception in a professing church context. And it will be rampant. And that, my friends, is where we live. I study apostasy a lot. And uh, I study apostates pretty thoroughly, too. And as in my reading, almost invariably, those who become flagrant apostates are those who come out of strong evangelical Bible teaching contexts. It's scary. Andy Stanley 
is the son of the famous preacher Charles Stanley. A few years ago, he came out and said, we need to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. Well, that caused no small stir, and rightly so. You see, the very gospel we believe in is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. It's according to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. The basics of creation, family, morals are all steeped in the Old Testament. Prophecy is largely about the Old Testament that is now fulfilled in the New Testament. And you know what Paul said? It's all profitable. All scriptures given by inspiration, guys, profitable. And yet Andy Stanley says, we need to unhitch from it. Well, if you unhitch from the Old Testament, I submit to you, you really have, you don't have a basis for the New Testament. Uh, how, do you, how do you prove the reality of the New Testament without the Old Testament? Th- this is what the New Testament does. It goes back to the Old Testament, shows all these things that were prophesied in the Old Testament are now fulfilled in the person of Christ. Unhitch from that? Unthinkable. Well, Andy pastors North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which boasts an average attendance of more than 38,000 people every week. So shut up, Pastor Dwight. You don't have a church that large. Yeah. Uh, 38,000 people weekly across eight uh, locations. This week I read a critique of Andy by Bill Hansberger. I don't know if you know Bill. I've known Bill for many years. He's worked with all kinds of cults and all kinds of stuff through the years. Uh, He heads up Haven Ministries, and and he uh, reports this. And I'm quoting from him now. Andy has come out of the closet, as it were, that Christians need to embrace unrepentant gay people in the church and even bless gay marriage as an option for the evangelical church. And uh, my words here, no no wonder he wanted to unhitch from the Old Testament. Uh, He continues, Andy then talked about how gay Christians he knew were the most serious Christians he had ever known. He went on to say how... Heterosexual Christians have so much to learn from gay Christians. And then Hans Berger says, In another sermon I watched repeatedly, Andy said that just because Jesus says something, that doesn't make it true. That, my friends, is coming from a pastor, quote-unquote pastor, of one of the largest, quote-unquote, evangelical churches in America. We have to be discerning. Some of the stuff that these large evangelical churches are putting out is pure poison. And frankly, I don't want to associate with them at all. I don't want to associate with their teachings. I don't want to associate with their singing. I don't want to associate with them whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says, from such people, turn away. They need to be identified. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, Paul says in Romans 16. All this to say, the Judases are still with us. They're deceivers, and they're very good at it. And some of them have very large churches. Footnote here. For about six months, the disciples had been haggling over uh, among themselves about who among them was to be greatest in the kingdom. It's very important to get that settled. Now, Jesus had strongly rebuked and corrected them, but they were still dealing with this spirit, even here on the eve of the crucifixion. Next slide, please. 
Luke 22, 21 through 24. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves. Which of them it was who should do this thing? Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. <laughs> I think this is kind of getting to their conscience a little bit, right? We know we shouldn't have been haggling this way. Jesus already strongly warned us about this. And oh my goodness. Now in the Greek, their question, Lord, is it I, expects a negative answer. So really more literally, the sense is, it is not I, is it? The language here cautiously expects that the answer is that it's not them, personally. But because of their own human weakness, as seen in even their disputing, even that night... They wondered aloud if it could even be them. They're kind of, you know, a, a moment of admitting their human weakness here. They were all appalled at the thought of a betrayer. And they never suspected Judas. They had no idea who it might be. Even to the point that each one painfully cries out, Lord, is it I? Lord is master. Literally, the word Lord means master. Master, it is, is it I? If Jesus is truly your master, you want to be loyal. And that's the great issue here. Verse 23, he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now this, in effect, was another affirmation that was one of them. Because they were probably all using a common bowl or bowls. At least those close to where Jesus was reclining at the table would have probably been all dipping into the same common bowl as was the practice. This too was in fulfillment of prophecy given 1,000 years previously as seen in Psalm 14, or 41 rather. Next slide please. For Psalm 41.9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. We know from John 13, this is clearly fulfilled prophecy. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, to eat with someone in this culture, and I really think it generally, <laughs> signifies friendship. This dastardly deed was coming from a friend. Someone who was close to Jesus. So close... They were eating out of the same dish. Well, this serves to heighten the enormity of this, of this betrayal. This was off the charts atrocious. We find in John's account in John 13 that Peter motioned to John, who was sitting right by Jesus, to ask him specifically who it was that he spoke of. Let's get down to it. Who, it's one of the twelve. It's, it's one who's dipping his hand in the dish. But there's another dish down there. Who, who, who specifically? And Jesus then told John, quote, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then John 13, 26 says, And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So John clearly knew at that point. We don't know that anybody else was in on it yet. But John clearly uh, was shown. Verse 24, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Pretty amazing verse here. All the alarms in the world should have been going off in the head of Judas. 
But alas, he has hardened himself to the point of no return, though he had had every opportunity. Son of Man is a Messianic title grounded in the Old Testament in places such as Daniel 7, 13, and 14. The term used by Jesus, uh, found about 80 times in the gospel, always used by Jesus, of Jesus. Nobody else refers to him in this way, but he does. This is uh, the most popular title for himself, used by himself. He said the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. This was destiny, prophesied destiny, just as it is written, you know, in the Old Testament that someone to unhitch from. Just as it is written in the Old Testament prophecies. Now probably in view are such texts as Psalm 22, Daniel 9, the servant passages in Isaiah climaxing in Isaiah 53. Luke 22, 22 says, Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. This has sovereignty written all over it. And yet there is a but in the sentence. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd not been born. You see, sovereignty does not remove human responsibility from the equation. We are not puppets. We are moral agents who are responsible for our moral responses. Moody Bible Commentary, verse 24, presents the mysterious balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God determined the time and circumstances of Jesus' death and brought them about through the sinful actions of Judas. But this neither absolved Judas of guilt nor placed upon God the moral culpability of Judas's treachery. Next slide, please. Warren Wiersbe says, Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not in conflict. Even though we may not be able to understand how they work together to fulfill God's will. And there are places where we cannot completely put it together. Verse 25, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You got it. My, my loose translation. He said, you have said it. It's almost like after the spontaneous, sorrowful, outbursts of the other disciples who all were crying out, Lord, is it I? After a pause, Judas, in keeping with his deceptive ways, also chimes in, Rabbi, is it, is it I? John MacArthur says, had Judas not said to Jesus the same thing as the others, he would have become suspect. He therefore imitated their astonished disbelief and parroted their anxious queries to the Lord. He even called Jesus rabbi as if to reinforce his feigned loyalty. No, but I want you to note the language here. Between what the other disciples said and what Judas said. Next slide, please. The disciples said, Lord, is it I? Judas said, Rabbi, is it I? A lot of the commentaries note this, this change. Seems to be a point of emphasis here. There's no record of Judas ever calling Jesus Lord anywhere. No one can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He was not recognized by Judas as his master, as his Lord. Judas was his own man, or so he thought, when in reality his, his real master was Satan. In contrast, all the other disciples did truly recognize Jesus as their master. They weren't simply recognizing him as Lord in a, in a polite way. 
He was their master. Feeble as they were, weak as they were often. Rabbi means esteemed teacher. But for Judas, even this was a total ruse. As he had no real esteem for Jesus. In no way, shape, or form. For he had just betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It was purely a hypocritical response. Now, occasionally, there are those who want to call Jesus a great teacher, but leave it there. They refuse to own him as Lord. Judas outwardly was in this category. C.S. Lewis responded to this depraved foolishness in this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. And he's right. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, God of very God, Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The truly saved recognize Jesus as Lord. And not merely as a good teacher. When in faith people recognize Jesus as Lord, they are recognizing him as sovereign master, as their God master. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. You recognize him for who he is as God master, as Savior. Earlier in the evening, in John 13, 13, in the context of washing their feet, Jesus had said to them, quote, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. And then he went on to say that they should do as he had done, quote, for a servant is not greater than his master. He was clearly the master. Yes, Jesus was the master teacher, but he was more than just a great teacher. He was the Lord. He is the teacher who is also Lord. Now, the rest of the disciples got this, but not Judas. To Judas, he was just rabbi. To the rest of them, he was Lord. And so it is for all true believers, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For us there is one Lord, Ephesians 4, 5. Now in response to the hypocritical question of Judas, Rabbi, is it I? Jesus immediately responded with, you have said it, which is to say, yes. And then dismissed him from the meeting. After this exchange, we read in John 13, next slide please, John 13, 27. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And verse 30 says, having received the piece of bread, he went out. He then went out immediately, and it was night. Now Jesus, indeed, truly being Lord, told Judas what to do and to do it quickly. Even now, Jesus was still in charge as the Lord. And Judas did as the Lord said. And the Bible says he went out, and it was night. Oh, how haunting is that phrase. It was night in the soul of Judas. It was as dark as dark could be. His experience then was not merely that of a demon-possessed man, 
but indeed that of being given fully over to the devil. Judas was literally possessed by the devil himself. Now, when I was uh, in Bible college, we had a speaker come who emphasized that there are always those who fall away. And his line was, never be shocked, always be grieved. He said, it won't be long and there will be an empty chair. There will be someone who you thought was truly with the Lord and with you, therefore, but has clearly come to abandon the faith, to abandon the Lord. Never be shocked, he said. Always be grieved. Now, he said that, I don't know how many times, but I must say it still continues to shock me and it continues to, still continues to grieve me. But that has always struck with me. Apostasy is a real thing and it's a scary thing. And the reason it's such a scary thing is it's an inside thing. Very probably there are some Judases among us this morning. I, I don't know that and I hope not. But it's, it's very, very possible and, and even probable. People we never suspect are not genuine and end up walking away. People that seem so sincere end up, and end up abandoning the faith. Happens all the time. Never be shocked. Always be grieved. True story from a pastor. I read this story this week in a magazine. A member of our church went to jail for several years. Suffice it to say, he had done bad things. Although it's not, you know, you never know why a person's going to jail anymore. But he had done bad things. His incarceration, however, caught our congregation by surprise. No one would have suspected him of living a double life. Even those who lived with him. In sorrow, he now tells me how he had mastered the act of Christian piety the kind of social gestures and grammar that appeared to manifest genuine faith. Our church member was an extreme case of hypocrisy. Two questions. Lord, is it I? Rabbi, is it I? The genuine know Jesus as Lord and in horror cry out, Lord, is it I? Even at the thought of being unfaithful to the Lord, the hardened, hypocritical, phony plays along. Rabbi, is it I? All the while being totally disingenuous. Well, let me ask you this morning, are you a true disciple or are you a Judas? You see, I can't tell. I can't tell. You can't tell when people simply say the right things. Jesus was an esteemed teacher. He was rabbi. You couldn't tell simply by that. This is the ultimate question. Do you truly know Jesus as Lord or are you just playing along? The Bible says examine yourself. No one else knows your heart through and through, but nobody ultimately except God. Ultimately, your relationship with the Lord is between you and the Lord. No one can do it for you. Everyone must do their own believing, their own dying, and their own accounting. In the end, the ultimate issue is Jesus and whether or not he is truly your Lord and Savior. The New Testament over and over and over says, do not be deceived. Hell is full of deceived people. They didn't think they were going there. Many will say, Lord, Lord. He'll say, I never knew you. Self-deception is the worst kind of deception. The Bible calls those who claim to be Christian and yet live a double life liars. And Revelation 28 21.8 says, 
all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Well, in truth, is Jesus your Lord or are you living a double life? Come clean today. Come to Jesus today. In your heart, truly believe on him and you will be forgiven. Your life will be changed. The Bible says today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The Bible says now is the accepted time. The invitation is come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. God help us to be among those who call upon him in truth. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.